0: Morning, we'll be reading Matthew 5, verses 27 to thirty. You have heard that that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I said to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, than, the, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, than that your whole body go into hell. Well, as uh, we kick off today's sermon, I want to begin by a really lighthearted hearted Romper room question, or or maybe a question for conversation over high tea and cucumber sandwiches with your grandma. Uh, how do you navigate our hypersexualized culture? <laughs> right, that goes well with cucumber sandwiches. Uh, no doubt, especially in 2020, especially in the West here in Toronto, but really, I think it's epidemic all over the world. Uh, our culture and cultures. Uh, put on a pedestal and even idolize uh, sexual awareness, sexual freedom, uh, a sexual spectrum, meaning it's no longer male and female, but there's a whole fluidity of sexual gender and identity and and sexual expression. Uh, And especially living in the age of internet, if we even want to try to moderate these desires, it's, it's like throwing gasoline, trying to put out a fire with gasoline, living in this age of internet and, and dealing with all the sexual mores and, 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 and temptations right around the corner. At best, we, we live in a sexual jungle, and we're just trying to navigate ourselves. Every uh, ad, the next ad, the next you know, TTC booth, the next ad on TV, the next show, the next just even on our smartphones, just everything, just uh, even junk mail that shows up in our, in our inboxes at times everywhere. At best, we're living in a sexual jungle. At worst, a sexual minefield, and we don't know when something is just going to pop in front of us or explode in front of us and maybe catch us in a weak moment where we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, and and then we just fall. Now, as said, but just to sort of reiterate, our our culture, it it celebrates all of this, the the freedom, sexual freedom, sexual expression, all that. It permits it Uh, It encourages it. In fact, it even, at times, resources it. And so sexuality certainly has been elevated to an all-important part of our identity. Uh, Identity certainly is an inner thing. Our our identity is about who we are on the inside, and and if we attempt to uh, just peel away the layers of who we are, um, where our culture, I believe, has ended, is that the most important part of who we are is our sexuality. Now, let's pause here. Certainly as Christ followers, in part, not completely and in in the complete spirit of our culture, but in part, we should be in agreement. Because if you are a Bible-believing Christ follower and you really understand what God teaches about sex in the Bible, then we know that God Himself created sex. And we need to get beyond just our conservative, you know, blushing and so forth and realize that there's something pure and beautiful and profound to what God created to be sex and what He meant it to be from the very beginning. And so, on one hand, Christians should be the healthiest people when it comes to our sexuality. But sex can be beautiful or beastly. It can it can be something wonderful where we receive it as the gift that it is from God and steward it, and experience it in the way, in the manner that he meant it to be, or we can be consumed by it, and it can control us, and even put our lives in tailspin. But our culture, certainly, I think, they've stopped at the level of our sexuality to say that is what is most important. But there's something even deeper than sexuality. And I know for probably some of us here, who are churchgoers, or maybe you've grown up in the church, you're you're automatically thinking, yeah, that's right, it's our spirituality, or our soul. But I would say that there's even something more fundamental to the soul in in our spiritual life than just the soul or spiritual life, and that is desire. See, what what drives sexuality? Sexuality is, is just an expression of a deepest fabric that we are created with by God, and that is desire. And, and so, if we come back to the question, how do you navigate our hyper sexualized culture? Some of us certainly, we just try to moderate our desires. We, so if we're honest, we have a little category of guilty pleasures, and we allow ourselves to indulge in those guilty pleasures in moderation. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone and it doesn't spin my life out of control, then it's okay. Some of us, certainly, we cater to our desires more intentionally. We indulge in them, and we want to make sure our appetites are quenched because it makes us happy, and we don't think of long-term consequences just as long in the very instant I am happy. Some of us, certainly, we justify our desires to think evolutionarily. we, We think, okay, well, I'm just honoring the caveman or the cavewoman in me and in my approach to sexuality, And some of us certainly, we we sympathize our desires because we look at ourselves tenderly as human beings, and, and who would be so cruel to deny a real felt need of a human being? Now, the gospel does something better, it does something truer, and the gospel names and nurtures a different deepest desire. Our culture ends at sexuality, but the gospel goes even deeper. Jesus goes even deeper, so what is it? We get a little clue when we jump to the end of the Bible, and God gives us his vision through his uh, Apostle John of new creation, and when everything is consummated, we see this wonderful picture in Revelation 21, behold the dwelling place of God, notice it's repeated three times, God is with man, God with man, and God will dwell with man. There will be a perfect closeness, a perfect intimacy. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. There's a perfect Trinitarian, thrice-repeated intimacy here, a closeness, a togetherness. And to just elaborate and expound that intimacy, look at this intimate scene here. He, God himself, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You don't let anyone wipe tears from your eyes, right? You let those who are most trusted, who are closest to you, that that you feel there is a safety in being intimate with them to wipe away tears from your eyes. And so what is our deepest desire, our most intimate desire according to the gospel? It's God himself and his gloriously glad-inducing presence, his gladness-inducing presence, to be as close to God as possible been perfect relationship with Him. So, as a, a summary of the message and where I hope we'll end up by the end of the sermon, I want to offer this prayer to you. And, and if we could learn to pray this prayer as a part of our relationship with God, Lord, satisfy me because You've created me to be about desire. Satisfy me increasingly with Your new covenantal love. Now, I, I know that last phrase there, it's it's a mouthful and. For some of us, it's a lot to chew on. You don't even know what that is talking about. But don't worry, we'll get there. But it's a vocabulary. It's a phrase that Jesus himself emphasizes that God points to in the Old Testament. And if we're going to understand Jesus and and what he wants to teach us about our desires and how to navigate this hyper-sexualized culture, we need to understand what he's offering us in this new covenantal love. And so for the rest of the time in this message I want to answer the question, what does Jesus want us to understand about desire? Because, just to repeat the point, it's so important for all of us to understand. An essence of you being human is that you live out of your desires. You live out your desires. And so we've got to get a handle on our desires. Oftentimes, synonymously, I say affections. It's the same thing. What does Jesus want us to understand about our desires, our affections? And I want to show you three things from the passage. First, God's covenantal desire. And that, that's the original setup between God and us. Our kid in a candy store desire. I think that's predominantly what, how we're living in today's society, today's culture. And then finally, Jesus' new covenantal desire. So first, God's covenantal desire. Jesus, he's preaching his Sermon on the Mount. And uh, at first he starts off very inspirational, very larger than life you know, happiness is, blessed are those, and, and then an inspirational uh, metaphor for his followers, you are the salt and light. And he gets into grand theology, a fulfillment theology that I've come to not abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he turns to become very practical. And Jesus is the master of understanding humanity. And I think he was right on point to address anger as the number one practical need to address in our lives. But now, the number two thing that he addresses, of all the things, put yourself in Jesus' shoes, you're about to have your first official sermon recorded, and you're about to address the needs of humanity. And the second thing he decides to address is broadly sexuality, and specifically adultery. I think he had perfect foresight into 2020. So we need to ask, what is God's deal with adultery? Jesus He cites the seventh commandment. He refers back to the Ten Commandments. And the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. What is God's deal with adultery? And what you need to understand, even by just hearing that word adultery, it assumes a whole lot of backstory. And the backstory is this, that God's deal with adultery, he cares about it, he prohibits it because God's covenantal love, his longing to relate to us, with a certain level of promise and fidelity it overflows from his covenantal desire what what I'm trying to say to you is that God himself has desires and his love flows out of his desire I don't have time to fully um, uh, develop that argument and I commend to you a book by John Piper uh, if you have the time and and to read it it's a thick book but it's so good And it talks all about this whole notion of God's desire for his own glory. But just to give you, uh, and it's called Desiring God, if I didn't mention that. But just to show you one verse, Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And that word there, please, it means all that he desires, all that he delights in, all that he wants to do that gives him joy. And covenant, so that we have no confusion about what this word means, it's a a bygone word to modern readers and listeners and so forth, but if you're going to understand God and Jesus and Christianity and the gospel, you've got to understand covenant. And and to covenant as a verb, it means to wholly bind yourself. The, The key word bind. To wholly bind yourself to another under specified stipulations. That's why marriage is a covenant. You're making a vow to wholly give yourself and bind yourself to one another. But where does that come from in the first place? It comes from God's character. Who he is is that he wants to bind himself to his people. And so even before he creates Adam and Eve, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they had a covenantal love within themselves perfectly. We could even say himself because they're three in one from eternity past to eternity future. That's who our God is. That's the nature. That's the fabric of his being. He's covenantal. He's one who binds himself in perfect fidelity, perfect faithfulness, perfect commitment. And so when he creates Adam and Eve, well, we need to understand that he created them out of an overflow of his covenantal desire. He created a people that he would demonstrate perfect fidelity towards, perfect binding towards, But in the original arrangement, he also expected Adam and Eve to demonstrate and show perfect covenantal love to God. That they would bind themselves. The responsibility was in their court. And so we know that uh, he just asked of them to obey and perform to perfection that one commandment. To not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God created Adam and Eve to be in covenant with him, to be intimately and happily bound in perfect relationship with him, and to reflect God's covenantal character and image through their own human relationship. That's the whole point of marriage from the very beginning. And so when God says simply in the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, underneath that what he's saying is, I want you to remember how covenantal I am and that I gifted you with marriage to reflect my covenantal nature. My covenantal character. I've given you this wonderful gift of marriage and sex to reflect on who I am. That's why Jesus, fast forwarding to Matthew 19, we'll eventually get to this passage, but just to refer to it today, uh, he is commenting on marriage. And so Jesus answers Have you not read, referring back to the law and prophets, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast? That's the nature of binding yourself wholly making yourself uh, to covenant yourself to that partner. And the two shall become one flesh. And so just as God mysteriously and beautifully is three in one, he's created man and woman to come together in covenant, to bind themselves together wholly and to also live out this Trinitarian mystery that two become one, that two people create a third person. They become one new person. And in that sense, to reflecting God in his character. And so they are no longer two but one flesh. And so Jesus makes a declarative statement, what therefore God has joined together, meaning God upholds marriage so highly because it reflects his very nature. That was the definition. That was the definitive purpose of marriage, to reflect God in his covenantal character. Because God esteems that so highly let man not separate it. So that's God's deal with adultery because it is separating something that God has meant to reflect on him and his character. Now I'm about to read a very good, succinct summary of this whole notion and why, what God's deal with adultery is by John Piper. But I want to make a disclaimer. If we take even Jesus' teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage uh, and Uh, Russell has the the delight to tackle that uh, hard topic next week. Um, But if we just take it face value, there are some hard teachings. And and on face value, Jesus basically says, uh, put aside infidelity, remarriage basically is wrong, that you are still committing adultery. I know, that's a hard teaching. But let me also say, that Jesus and his whole point, even in these beatitudes, he's raising God's standards even higher to show us that much more how much we need his grace. And in saying that, it is in no, not an iota of spirit to make anyone who's remarried here feel guilty or condemned, but it's to all the more show us how much grace we need of God and how far we've fallen from his covenantal ways. And so I say that as a disclaimer because this quote here, it just says, matter-of-factly, if we take face value, Scripture's teachings on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, then these are the black and white conclusions, what Scripture says, face value. Marriage is a one-flesh relationship of divine establishment and extraordinary significance in the eyes of God. And so only God, because it reflects on His character, His covenantal nature, not man, can end this one-flesh relationship. This is why remarriage is called adultery by Jesus. He assumes, aside from infidelity, that the first marriage is still binding. Okay? Now, again, please hear me clearly. There is not an iota of spirit of condemnation in me quoting John Piper saying that. It is to show God's impossible standards. And there's much grace for all of us. We have all sinned in many which ways, you know, infinite number of ways, and we are all guilty before God, and we need His grace. Now, put it this way, though, just, just to get the oomph of it, what, what God really wants us to feel in that seventh commandment. Imagine asking the Trinity, God the Father, the Spirit, to disband. Imagine asking God the Father and Spirit to Explode their intimacy, their relationship. See that 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 seems preposterous, right? That that could never happen. How could that ever happen between, within our perfect God? And, and and that's how much God wanted marriage to reflect on His nature and His character. And so, likewise, human nature, human marriage was created to reflect God's divine covenantal love. So again, what is God's deal with adultery? In the beginning. God bound himself to us on condition that we bind ourselves to him. I want you to catch that that clear distinction. In the beginning, God's covenantal desire and love, it required that Adam and Eve had to bind themselves as well. They, They had to do their part. They had to fulfill their responsibility. But we know that they failed, that that project failed. And so Adam and Eve's adultery, it really was, it spat in the face of God's covenantal character. And Adam and Eve's adultery, we, we don't mean their marriage. See, the first adultery they committed was against God. So what we need to understand now is how this affects us today, and, and that's what I want to just call down to earth as our kid in a candy store desire. I think that's generally how we live and, and navigate what our culture has turned into and and how we just navigate our culture as a kid in a candy store. Now, when Jesus reminds us, you've heard that it was said. He's pointing to the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. You shall not commit adultery. Probably most of us maybe are feeling a little smug. Well, I haven't done that. Maybe there are some of us who have here. And maybe you're in a better place because you all the more see your need for the grace of God. That's the place to be in in life to realize you need the grace of God. But to preclude any of us feeling smug, Jesus is about to widen the circle of potential guilt and indictment. And Jesus continues the pattern that he started in talking about anger. He points out the Old Testament law and prophet, God's standard, what we thought was this high. And now he says, but I say to you, and he raises the standard even higher. How does Jesus raise it higher? Now, he says, but I say to you that everyone, meaning he's going to say something that in such a way that all of us are put on the witness stand. All of us need to be questioned. All of us need to look in the mirror. And all of us need to evaluate, have we, and he goes on to say, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, that they have already committed adultery with her in his heart. So whatever Jesus has said here, Whatever happens in the heart first, in God's eyes, is just as offensive and incriminating as actually physically living it out. Now, Jesus, he's a master teacher, and he was word crafting in such a way that commentators say this could be understood in two ways. First, just uh, literally face value, talking to men who look at women with lustful intent. Or there's legitimate grammatical Uh, warrant there to also hear it as when men cause a woman to lust after them. And so Jesus, he's widening the circle to everyone, not just men. And on that note, we need to talk about lust. Lust is not just a physical sexual thing. Lust can be an emotional thing where we are lusting after someone's uh, friendship and companionship that perhaps the one that we have covenanted with is not providing. And that word lustful intent, to to just make it even that much more closer to every one of us, it's just literally the word for desire, the Greek word for epithumia. And so it could be paraphrased, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with desire, not even the word lust, desire has already committed adultery with her in his heart just to show you how close desire is with us. What Jesus is getting at here is desire is a whole spectrum. And with the exact same word in the Greek, in Luke 17, Jesus says to disciples, the days are coming when you will desire. This is a good desire. This is a beautiful desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Again, in Luke 22, Jesus says the exact same word. He said to them, I have earnestly desired. He's not talking about lusting after the Passover feast, to eat it with them before they suffer. But this is a beautiful desire, a longing of Jesus. And so what Jesus is trying to teach us here by using that word specifically is that desire is a whole spectrum. We need to have a handle, a leash on our desires. The desire gone wild becomes covetous desire, a.k.a. lustful intent. But we also know that there's a covenantal desire, meaning this longing to... Be bound to one, that what God had to bind Himself to one and to have another bind Himself to God in perfect fidelity. But really, that was about a performance based love and a desire to, to earn the affirmation of someone, a desire to earn the affection of someone. But what Jesus is going to get to is a far better desire. Now, let's define lust then. Let's just pause, and we've been talking about lust. Lust, again, just synonymous with covetous desire. It's basically to covet. And what does it mean to covet? It means to desire someone or something that is not yours as necessary for your happiness. And this can happen inconsolably. Sometimes lust can just, uh, just overcome us and take over us that we're just consumed by lust, and it just stays in our hearts for days on end, and it's hard to get rid of it. Or it could just be in passing. You just be walking down the street and you see a man or a woman or or just whatever it is. Maybe it can be an object. But just even in passing, in that instant, you think, that's not mine, but I need it. It's necessary for my happiness, even though maybe it might not take root and stay with you all day. But in that instant, you've lusted. And so on that note, yes, here specifically Jesus is addressing sexual lust, sexual covetous desire. But we can lust after anything and everything. We can lust after food. We can lust after reputation. We can lust after a position at work. We can lust after a car. We can lust after home. We can lust after anything, everything. And so what Jesus wants us to realize is how far, when he says, but I say to you, he wants us to realize how far we have fallen from God's covenantal love, desire, and happiness. Now, where does this all start? We've got to go back to Our our great, 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 however many greats, grandma, grandpa, Adam and Eve. And in that moment of temptation, so when Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. See that word delight there? In the Hebrew, it's synonymous with desire. You could have just translated that. It was a desire to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired. Another word for desire, but a synonym is used there. It's all about desire. We live out of our desires. We've got to get a handle on our desires, our affections. And she wanted this. Satan masterfully and tactically played to Adam and Eve's delight and desires. They're, they're longing for happiness. And so Adam and Eve here, they're now beginning to look outside of God towards things other than God, even to be God. They were beginning to desire these things. And effectively, our desires mutated to being that of a kid in a candy store. You think of a kid in a candy store, and first it's just overwhelmed, being overwhelmed. (laughs) Like, oh my goodness. And then it's just a spaghetti ball, you know, spaghetti bowl of, of emotions. There's also entitlement. I deserve all this. There's greed. I want all this. There's there's just uh, ambition to put all of that in your mouth. And, and, and that's the attitude that we take on in our grown-up versions. And we can even become whiny and unhappy when desires are unmet. We act like this all in our grown-up versions. So what's our hope? What's our hope? Let me pause before we get to our hope in, in Christ just a a sober and and out-of-love-and-care warning maybe if you are lusting after someone let's let's just get to the specific context of sexual covetous desire or or maybe you're emotionally longing for someone beyond what is wise and, and healthy maybe you are married and someone else in your life, at work or somewhere in your social circles, is fulfilling you a bit more emotionally than your partner. Maybe you're, you're, you're adoring someone physically a little too much. If that's the case, step back. Step back and, and take Christ's words to heart and all the more long for this hope that we're about to unpack. If you are single here today and the way you are navigating your single relationships and your social life is such that it is in a covetous way or or you're leading people on and so forth take a step back and say God help me take a good look in your face in the mirror of your face to understand what's going on with my heart and my desires and help me to find my hope in Jesus' new covenantal desire so what do we mean by this I think Jesus gives us the answer in the last two verses. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out <laughs> and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If that wasn't gross and you know, violent enough <laughs> and, and sadistic, masochistic enough, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I don't know what's worse, right eye or right hand, and throw it away for it is better than that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, let's be clear, just to get right to the answer. Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation here. He is speaking in exaggeration to make a point because let's be logical. Self-mutilation does not solve the problem of a covetous and, and sexually lustful heart. Just watch the movie Ray about Ray Charles, or read a biography. He had a messy sex life. Or even a maimed person can seduce and sleep with someone. See, Jesus is not advocating literally self-medical. That doesn't solve the heart. What is Jesus' point then? I think he's saying one thing on the surface and one thing below the surface in a parable-like way. On the surface... Jesus is saying to his would-be followers who will live out the kingdom here on earth until it's fully consummated, his would-be filled with the Holy Spirit followers, that you have to do your part. There is a self-discipline to this. There is a fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We need to grow into that. We need to learn healthy techniques motivated by the right heart. One thing that I picked up and stuck with me uh, from university days is bouncing the eyes. If whether man or woman, you have a tendency for your eyes to just stay looking a little too long at something, when, when something beautiful hits your eyes, just to bounce the eyes as an as a, as a instinctive reaction. If you know that you are more vulnerable at certain times during the day, when you're tired or hang, hungry or hangry or lonely, etc, know those things and create an exit strategy for yourself. For myself, just to speak for my own life, when, when, when desires start to get a little wild, then I go cycling. <laughs> right? It's a healthy exit strategy for me. Find something that works for you. Find something that works for you. Th- these are things Jesus is saying on the surface, you need to do your part. Of course, with the help of the Spirit, and it's not just by mustering up our own willpower, but below the surface, Jesus is also saying, first there's a bit of sarcasm because the commentators say that the Jewish religious leaders actually taught this exact same teaching. And there were actually some religious leaders, even before Jesus said this, that taught the same thing. They knew that in God's eyes, not physical adultery wasn't the most offensive thing, that you could commit adultery in your heart. So this wasn't a new teaching per se to Jesus. So what does that mean? On one hand, Jesus is saying a bit sarcastically, so go ahead and do what all the religious te- leaders are telling you. Try to solve the problem on your own strength. Go ahead and maim yourself. See how that works. But then even more below the surface, Jesus is saying, well, as we ask the question then, how will I fight the desire for my eyes and heart to wander? Jesus is getting at something deeper, that these things what the religious leaders are teaching, it won't solve our hearts. So how do, we, how do we fight these things? How do we fight the desire for my eyes and heart to wander? Here I just offer you a little bit from John Donne's Holy Sonnets, a poet from the 1500s. And he's, this is a love poem to God. And he says, Take me to you. Imprison me. For I accept you. Enthrall me. Never shall be free. Unless you consume me utterly, Jesus Christ, I will never be free, nor ever chaste. I won't be able to fight all these desires, except you ravish me. You ravish me. I'll never be pure until you ravish me. What's John done getting at? He's saying, I want to be so satisfied with Christ and his new love. See, what is Christ's new covenantal love? Whereas God originally bound himself to his people and he expected us to do our part to bind ourselves to him, God knows, okay, they can't do that. So how how are they going to follow me? How how am I going to bring them back to myself? What Jesus does, he gives up more than an eye. He gives up more than a hand. He gives up more than a right hand. He gives up the right hand of fellowship with his father. He gives up being seen by his Father and forsaken on the cross for that moment as he takes on the sins of the world, all our adulterous wanderings, he takes that all upon his shoulders. And he gives up his whole body to hell so that we can be bound to Christ by faith, not by our performance, not by our own purity, but bound to Jesus. And then what does Jesus do as the middleman, as the mediator, as we say? then he binds us in his perfect fidelity to God the Father. And he himself actually fulfills that first covenant. That's why Jesus is mind-blowingly beautiful and important. And what John done is saying, I want to be ravished by this love. I want to see that you are willing to give yourself up for me so that in my weakest moments when I fail and I don't want to fail but I fail, that I'm still bound to the Father in an unconditional love because of Christ's righteousness. Jesus has bound himself to those who place faith in him so that we can be bound to God by his righteousness. And so wherever you're at, there's much grace here. We are all coming from different places, and we're all fighting different things. But if you are struggling with, with just fighting a, a, a sexual fight, especially today. I hope you'll take the right step in the right direction. Lord, satisfy me increasingly with your new covenantal love. And in those moments, that what will be your greatest power to bounce the eyes away, to turn off the computer, to stop looking at that person, to stop daydreaming emotionally about that person, would be that Christ has loved you and it is worth it to continue to follow Him, to be loved by Him, that His love is better than all these things, these candies that you think will actually satisfy you, but won't. Lord, satisfy me increasingly with your new covenantal love. Amen.